Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Sales is Not a Dirty Word, the podcast where we usually help people stop feeling weird about sales so they can help more people. But today we have a special business interview with Jason Bowden, Bowden Distel. And he is a twice published author, a serial entrepreneur, and a startup aficionado. Thank you for coming, Jason. You're very welcome. It's an honor to be here. And you didn't butcher my last name, Alicia. I know you were worried about that. So that's a good start. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So excited to have you on. You have some really interesting experience starting some companies, potentially selling some companies. Now you're in the cannabis industry. So let's get started at the beginning. Right before we started recording, you were like, I have a really crazy story. And so I wanted to get that on tape if you definitely yeah what is it basically uh i have one of those backgrounds that probably shouldn't have even tried to get into entrepreneurship because uh, i started out uh i was oh go park at it go somewhere else and he also has a one-year-old golden (laughs) retriever yes I uh, I actually was raised by a single mom on welfare, and I was actually homeless twice as a kid, and I think that actually probably played a role in when I got out of high school, basically kind of feeling me to want to do more than just work a traditional day job, because you go through that level of desperation, and and you basically molds you to not want to know what that feeling is like again. So I did four years Navy, got out, uh, honorable discharge, and actually that was when I started into the world of entrepreneurship. My first startup was Online Legacy, and that was meant to be a competitor to Ancestry.com. Uh, I was with them for about a year. That was basically purely a learning experience. Uh, what did you do for them? I actually did a lot of their online marketing campaigns and their digital marketing. Uh, I've been passionate about computers for most of my life. Like I was the, the the awkward nerdy teenager that would spend a lot of time on the internet or dabbling with computer parts. So computers have always been something I'm enthusiastic about. I helped drive traffic to their website as well as doing their website SEO and uh managing our social media yeah all kinds of good experience there from there uh there was my first four uh from there there was actually my first four i to try and do my own business project uh, that's when i learned that the music industry is very low margin and profitability is very difficult i ran an independent record label called board student records for about two years uh worked with uh Artists such as uh, Oh Hush, who actually wrote a song for CeeLo Green. I booked a show for the Dolly Rots from Blackheart Records. Uh, Worked with a handful of other artists. Uh, Launched two different charity compilation CDs. Uh, You can probably still find those on CD Baby, I'm sure. Uh, 
eventually got tired of the fact that we weren't even breaking even. I was basically paying to keep things afloat because indie record labels and profitability is a really difficult combo. Uh, so I moved on to joining a startup for the second time, and that was uh, Dynamictivity. It was a social CRM, did a lot of their marketing strategy, as well as started kind of learning some basic coding and getting my feet wet uh, with uh, basically uh, QA and juggling like four different hats because there were literally four of us and only two of us originally could code. And so when it came to building out the product and doing the quality assurance, uh, me and the other guy that didn't originally start as coders had kind of like jump in and at least learn some basics in order to kind of uh, pitch in because that was the uh, startup actually that uh, ended up having a buyout offer on the table. And we had some disagreements about uh, who was going to, about whether we should sell. And out of the four of us, I was the only one that was fully convinced that we should take the money. So, and there were some disagreements over marketing strategy as well. Is there some like popping or crackling noise going on in your background? Yeah. This is awkward timing, but my golden retriever has grabbed random plastic off of somewhere. Okay. Sorry, it's making it hard to hear you. Make sure we can okay. story. All right. We are back to not having random awkward uh, background noise. Marley, you need to play with something that doesn't make noise, okay? <laughs> no squeaking. This is the fun part of having a one-year-old golden retriever. He's like, in the background, he's all like, I'm just going to grab random things regardless of how loud they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you guys didn't sell, what'd you do with the company? Uh, it kept operating for about another year. Uh, I continued to have some disagreements with uh, the CEO and the CTO over how we were going to actually niche down our target audience and grow out a customer base. Uh, after about a year of spinning our wheels, eventually uh, the team broke up and I don't think the product's even live anymore. So, so it was, it was a, an important lesson that if you can't get everyone on the same page, sometimes it's good to take the money and run. So. Yeah, totally. Next time, like it, yeah, that's a great lesson. Next time that you guys aren't agreeing and there's an offer on the table, just, just, take the money but it's hard to make that decision on your own because you still have to have your partners agree right yes uh when you have uh, a team and you have split equity you have to all be in agreement on what decisions you want to go forward with and all being on the same page as far as the strategy you want to execute it's sometimes understated but it's an extremely important aspect of really just getting, uh, the maximum uh, both return as well as managing progress. You have managed another distraction and we have successfully gotten to the next point. <laughs> Hopefully nobody else decides to, to grab anything, so. <laughs> okay. Um. 
So yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't take the money without everybody else agreeing to also take the money, right? So, or at the minimum, you had to have the majority of the equity on board with it, because that's typically how a buyout works. Uh, I've worked, now that I've been involved with the startup industry and private equity, while if you don't have a strong majority on board, uh, it's not only not legally possible, it's impossible to really move forward with anything. So, so we, had to, we would have had to have at least three of us agree. Uh, that we wanted to take the money. So even mm -hmm. in the future, how would you avoid that? I think the biggest thing would to be sit down, communicate your thoughts, concerns, as well as clearly the vision you have for where the project's going forward. See if everyone's on the same page, if that all aligns with everybody, and from there, you need to kind of ask yourself some hard questions. Are we going to all be able to get on the same page? Are we all going to be able to execute and help grow this together? Or is there too much of a philosophical difference that maybe at this point moving on is for the best? And sometimes it's, it's, I think that was actually part of the difficult thing was the person that, had done the majority of the coding, he got emotionally attached to the product because, and he couldn't look at it objectively that maybe this isn't something that I'm going to be able, that we can just kind of will into existence, so. Yeah, he, it was his baby. Um, so in the future, do that like before you even go into business or at the time when somebody comes to offer you money? My opinion is that you should have that worked out before your four awkward early 20-somethings that are all uh, randomly staring at nearly a million dollars. Because in hindsight, that felt like a lot of money, but that was probably someone realizing they could make a lot more with the technology and that the rest of it was kind of a mess because none of us were on the same page. So. Yeah, but... At that point, it probably wasn't worth as much because it was all a mess. Like, they were going to have to clean it up. It's exactly true because they were going to have to put a lot of the processes in place because uh, you had four different people with all four different ideas on how it needed to be built. And, yeah, that was... I, I would say that's something you really want to put down in writing before you even get into product development, make sure that everybody at least has some type of correlation to the vision of how things should be built and how uh, the brand should be grown amongst all of you. Because uh, if you're not on the same page, you're gonna end up wasting a lot of time and money and energy and not getting nearly as far as you want it to. Right. And processes, I hear this so often, are such a big part of successful business. And nobody talks about it because it's so boring um, and not exciting and not sexy. Processes, I am somebody who struggles with that, definitely. Um, so what would you say for people that hate even hearing the word processes? Like, should they just hire somebody uh, to do it all? If you're not someone that that 
is detail oriented or doesn't get excited about tweaking those little details, you probably should look into someone that does coaching or consulting on the outside of your business so you can have an objective outside to look or at least sit down and jot down the key points as to how you want that brand to be built, how you want that strategy to be executed. And you want to make sure there's ironed in a crystal manner as possible because once you get into brand expansion and sales and growing that brand to out to an international market potentially mm-hmm. you need to have a, a clear message that that basically clearly states what that brand is what its purpose is and needs to be consistent amongst all those channels that's going out to and Having that foundation in place ahead of time, uh, I learned that the hard way that uh, it's going to save you a lot of headache in the long run. So what about the people that say, just get started, like imperfect action, basically, um, because you can get really hung up on uh, putting all that stuff in place beforehand without having feedback from the market on exactly what they want. Kind of like the build it while you fly sort of idea. That Um, is honestly somewhat of what I did with, uh, with uh, 60 press because I had a target market, but I didn't have everything perfectly ironed out. However, one thing you're going to run into is you need to, is if you're not going to be able to build the product yourself, you need to have capital available to assuming that you can't find someone with the technical skills to team up to build the product. You need to find someone that you can pay for product development because it is typically you can pay 5000 or more to build most web-based software. And if you don't have mm-hmm. extra capital laying around, that's going to be a hurdle that's going to be hard to get past. Uh, I do understand the argument with uh, action is better than you know perfect inaction. However, you want to have at least some type of a solid basic uh, foundation, at least bullet points, you know, this is yeah, so like a brand name and where I see things expand to, et cetera. Yeah. So like a skeleton and then areas that are more open to adapt kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, so you're going to need to make adaptions on the fly. Um, most smaller business entities, you're going to need to be willing to make quick strategic changes, adjust business strategy as need be. And you're going to need to be flexible about uh, where your strategy could be incorporated. Like, for example, you decide that you want to target uh, Germany and you want to target uh, uh, Volkswagen owners. You want to make sure that you niche down to that specific area and you want to make sure that it's actually you want to actually know the demographics of those particular people that you're targeting so that you can craft a message to them that actually uh, is going to both compel them as well as draw their attention 
Yeah, this is something I've heard a lot too, is niching down because if you serve everyone, then you serve no one. Yes. Type of thing. Okay, so what was the next business? That one kind of dissolved and you went, you went your separate ways and then you knew that you needed to partner with people and establish all this foundation ahead of time. So did that happen with the next business? Actually, the next project was me mostly doing... Uh, uh, next project was actually me doing mostly solopreneur for a little while because I got a little burnt out on trying to make different... Uh, personalities and uh, ideologies work together. So I did my own consulting practice there for several years, uh, did a lot of both digital marketing strategy as well as uh, content strategy and, uh, and web-based business strategy, uh, worked with a handful of companies, especially with LinkedIn strategy. Uh, one of those companies, Go By Truck, their CEO is actually a LinkedIn influencer now after uh, the work I did with her. And I'm gonna probably name drop here, but there was brief forays with a, a company called Lemonass, Dell, uh, I think, uh, oh, Financial Ben, which I think is now called Run the Money. And then I also wrote some content for a website called Under 30 CEO, uh, which you can still find floating all over the internet, so. Very cool. Okay, so eventually you were like, you know, took a breath, made some money, and had a break, and you were ready to to attack the building a business again. Yeah, I, I kind of went the solo consulting business route there for a little while because uh, as long as you know what you're doing, you don't really have to deal with the whole difference of opinions because you can freelance almost anything extra overseas and. There's not that juggling four or five personalities on the startup team. So I was kind of giving myself a chance to make money in the business world with a mental break from trying to juggle differing uh, thoughts and viewpoints. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So how long did you do that before your next business? Uh, did that until 2000. I mainly did that actually from about 2012 to about 2016, I want to say. That's actually about the time that I started having some health problems. Uh, my wife had some health stuff come up and uh, ended up getting defrauded. Uh, someone actually got a hold of my information, uh, this Nigerian crime syndicate. And uh, yeah. I, I told you that there's parts of my story that you could totally make a movie out of and people would be like, you're full of shit. So, uh, but uh, basically they ended up running up about a hundred thousand dollars on our credit cards. Oh my God. You're not responsible for that, right? You're not supposed to be, but you'd be amazed at how little the credit card companies cared. They, they essentially were like, prove it's fraud or you're responsible for this. Like it was on us to prove that it was fraud. And I'm like, you shouldn't have to prove to your credit card company that a hundred thousand dollars just wired all over the world. Yeah. Well, was yeah. it where you're located or was it like in Nigeria, the charges? A lot of these were like money being sent to various points around the U S or even for other different countries. 
like it was nowhere close to us and they still did not flag that they were like proved us that you were like so we're randomly going around the country uh uh funneling money to nigeria please explain to us how that makes sense wait what credit card was it so we can all avoid this credit card uh this was actually uh it was one credit card i had was actually through uh usaa uh they seem to love advertising how good they are to veterans but apparently when it comes to fraud protection they seem to not particularly care too deeply uh and then the other card card company uh i believe ironically enough was capital one oh no uh, and I've heard they've had some security breaches too, so they've had some issues with stuff like that. And then uh, also Bank of America, uh, some of the fraudulent checks that were being taken out, uh, they didn't particularly care uh, that we were the ones being defrauded. They just wanted their money. So. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy because I have Chase and I just called them because somebody got a hold of the number and, and charged some stuff up in Tennessee. And um, they were like, okay, yeah, no, that wasn't you. <laughs> so I don't know that we'll just avoid those two. Um, so that's, that's really hard. So you got defrauded and then what? Well, basically that blew up our finances and we ended up having to file for bankruptcy. Uh, and at that point, my wife's, me and my wife were both dealing with some different health issues and I'll admit that depression started winning and, uh, that was actually the, uh, fall of 2016, if I'm remembering correctly, it was actually the time of my suicide attempt. So. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, I've. I've kind of been through like the darkness and back out the other side. Like you could probably not script a better story, but yeah. So man, I, I took our SUV and I rammed it into the median on the interstate. So, Oh my gosh. Okay. So then what happened? Was that like the bottom and now it's about to get way better? The story. Yes. That that's pretty much rock bottom because wanting to die and filing for bankruptcy you don't get much worse than that uh i mean i guess maybe at the very beginning when i was homeless for a little while and as a kid that wasn't great either but uh but you had that little period at the bottom you had that upswing we are on our way back up uh by the way if anybody hears this and wants to talk book or movie rights i'm open to it just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I well, figured I'd get it out there. Yes, I think that people are always pretty fascinated by those who were homeless for a period of time and, and came out successfully on the other side, like, you know, the pursuit of, of happiness type of thing um, with Will Smith starring in it. Um, so, yeah, I think that that is a very interesting story. But this, you, you had the suicide attempt. It was not successful, which is great. And I'm glad it was not successful. And then you were like, I got to wake up and get my shit together. Yeah, you know, eventually you come back out the other side and you're like, you know, that really sucked. But I can't just sit down there and mope and, 
you know, completely give up because I've gotten myself most of the way to the top once. If I pull myself back up, there's no reason why I can't get myself back there again. So it's true. So I good logic. Yeah. I, uh, I ended up, uh, at that point, I believe we we're into at least early 2017. And that's when I actually started, uh, Wibbits Incorporated. Uh, it's W I B B E T S. Uh, I, uh, basically started as a holding company originally working on internet based media, as well as, uh, doing consulting work as a, a way to supplement uh, revenue intake and started doing research on trying to get into the cannabis industry. Uh, we have, right now we have a sports themed, uh, a cannabis friendly sports uh, brand that uh, is in the very early stages of being built up. That's 420 Sports. And then I have a separate cannabis uh, media site that is still a work in progress. Most of our cannabis industry-based revenue is actually uh, consulting with them, uh, kind of throwing in the business consulting angle again as a revenue driver because uh, things like content strategy and digital marketing strategy, especially people that maybe saw the profitability of the cannabis industry and maybe don't have a business background. Uh, that's something that they don't really fully know how to incorporate or execute. And it's uh, something that I've gotten some revenue in the door with uh, by being able to help with that. So, Yeah. Okay. So which one is, is being, is showing to be more profitable right now? Uh, right now, the main sources of revenue are my consulting work with the cannabis industry. And then uh, the other side of the company is actually the media side. And we have a, a third uh, sports media brand. Uh, it's a basketball uh, brand called Basketball Rehab that has actually garnered uh, coverage on uh, both uh barstool sports as well as espn radio and there are a couple major media companies that are monitoring it right now as a potential acquisition candidate i'm not at liberty to name those companies uh but let's just say that we'd be talking probably seven figures a minimum i would assume so very cool so the sports company is the idea that like cannabis can help your athletic performance in a way? That is a tie-in that I've been using with the, uh, the one brand and I've incorporated some into the other as well, is ways that cannabis can help with both uh, athlete recovery as well as pain management. Uh, I've also, I'm also a very analytical person, so I do a lot of uh, analytics-based uh, content for our sports brands and so i think that also has some of the appeal as well yeah analytics on what exactly uh basically i take uh like estimated models for uh like different nba scenarios and i actually break those down 
and do advanced stats, uh, like an analytical analysis on potential outcomes out of that uh, out of that particular scenario. So, like different play, like play strategy. Uh, like a uh, potential play or like or like predictions for the season based on like taking five or six key advanced stats and then weighing those as potential uh, success drivers. Kind of like Moneyball? Yeah, it's a very Moneyball-like uh, process of basically predicting uh, potential sports outcomes. Uh, Moneyball is really the, the father, uh, or maybe the grandfather at this point, of how a lot of that's done. Uh, actually, that and machine learning are really hot industries uh, that, uh, other than cannabis, I would say those are probably the two, the three uh, biggest industries that are going to see a ton of growth in the next few years. Uh, I I may be a little bit autistic and I may uh, not sleep much. So I have a lot of different things that I spend way too much time reading and studying. <laughs> well, honestly, it sounds like you could take that uh, statistical analysis to Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually did some research on card counting because I learned this because uh, also within last year, I did actually, jokes aside, learned that I do actually have Asperger's. and. Uh, which explains a lot as to why I lock in on like all these hardcore details and these analytical models. And most people that know me think that I'm speaking another language. So, and well, you've been it is actually more of English. It's just not everybody speaks geek. So, uh, right. Well, what you're talking about now all sounds like. English to me, but I know that you can get very deep into that. We're talking very high level, obviously. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going over, I'm glossing over the basics because I, I, I don't want people to completely gloss their eyes to roll back in their head on me. Yeah. Because uh, I've done that to a job I've, back years ago when I tried re-entering the job market. I've done that to an interviewer going into too much detail and I've also done that to my wife uh, when we were dating this is going to be a little random funny foray but when we were dating I used to just go about on about like uh, science statistics or economics any one of those subjects if I could go into much enough detail it would put her right to sleep so well she still married you so that's cool yeah um, fortunately I have uh, yeah she still picked me, despite the fact that sometimes I get off on like these tangents and ramble about things to put her to sleep. So I did something right. So. <laughs> well, so this sounds like a really like forward, progressive business. It's got a lot of opportunity. Um, and like you said, it's pretty hot right now. So um, have you started building out a team for it? Right now, I have a couple people I've been talking with as far as getting uh both a cto and potentially a uh a uh, cmo on board uh nothing is concrete yet i am actually still recruiting uh interns to help with some more of the more basic tasks as well as uh at least a cto and a cmo to uh to actually start uh 
building out a little bit more of a, uh, I guess you could say an international strategy because I kind of picture what we're building as like a GE uh, or Google type conglomerate eventually. And so there's gonna be multiple moving parts, but right now the main focuses are the media side and the consulting side is really just a revenue supplement until we have enough revenue coming in from the media side and then we'll probably branch out into some other industries as well. Okay, so you would recommend at the start maybe to have interns and at what point would you recommend people start looking at a CMO and a CTO? Like what revenue, is there like a number that you're waiting to hit that it makes sense? Well, we cleared six figures uh, by the skin of our teeth last year. We're probably looking at about 150K for the revenue number this year. Uh, you want to be somewhere in that area because you want to have you want to have enough revenue that you know that there is a market opportunity. And from there, you want to find the right people that share that same vision as you, uh, that, you know, maybe have that weird autistic Steve Jobs idea of let's build the next GE, uh, which I know not every person is going to think that sounds a great idea, but you know, someone is, if you, out there and you uh, and you uh, pitch yourself to the right people uh, like for example the entrepreneurship uh, uh, job sites and things like uh, find a co-founder you're gonna find people that share that same vision as to what they want to build and from there it's really about just executing and building out uh, the infrastructure of what you envision it to be. Yeah. So start with the idea, test it by yourself, and then when you hit around 150, look at adding people to build out the structure and flesh it out more. Correct. And then just be adaptable, be ready to make adjustments if you need to change small amounts of your business strategy as you go along. Uh, you want, as we touched on period uh, previously though, you want to have at least that game plan mapped out and you wanna have at least a clear vision of where it's going to all go because uh, you're gonna need to probably find two or three people to help you build that vision and then everybody else is going to play their role in uh, putting that all together. So. And how much would you pay a CMO or a CTO? Because that has to come, that's part of your overhead. <clears throat> yeah, that's something you definitely need to keep in mind. I would say that minimum, you're gonna need to probably, a lot of times those jobs pay six figures. You might be able to get someone to pay, take less depending on your modest revenue and the amount of potential they see in everything being grown out. But that's going to really be a matter of what can be negotiated and what they're comfortable with. Uh, you're going to probably need to pay them minimum 50K or some type of a decent general salary. And that would be, and their willingness to take less would probably depend a lot on how much they believe in 
that probability of you helping build the next GE or Google, for example. Right. And so do you think that that's the first person somebody should hire? I know that I, another business owner I interviewed said she thought sales was the first that you hire. Oh, yes. Uh, I actually think that they make an excellent point there. I would not hire out the the peripheral people without having a sales strategy or a sales team in mind. And you're going to need uh, salespeople at this point uh, if you're able to actually support uh, yourself and kind of start branching out into a sales arena. You're you're going to need to actually start pushing uh, sales out there into the because we actually we actually are looking for salespeople as well because that is a fair point. Uh, the thing about uh, that is you're going to need to find people that either will work for a modest salary or work off a commission, depending on what you can uh, spare at the moment as far as that's concerned. But uh, yeah, obviously without sales, you're, uh, or without strategic partners and some type of revenue coming in from those alliances, uh, you have to have money coming in. Uh, well, your overhead is pretty low, right? Right now? Yes. Uh, so the positive to that is you could definitely hire salespeople, especially if they're willing to work for like a modest salary and then make up the rest in, uh, in commission. But you are correct that one of the positives to most media ventures is other than like a little bit of paid advertising, the overheads actually pretty low. Uh, most of the, I think one of the main reasons why the media side of things is not something that everybody jumps into is because it's one of those areas that getting to profitability uh, and having a sustainable profit margin is not as easy as some other industries because uh, advertising dollars have really uh, gone down the last several years. So hmm, I had not heard that. Yeah. Uh, to give you an example, I know that advertising dollars from certain companies maybe or at least stagnant but uh if you're for example if you're monetizing through like adsense uh uh things like adsense have actually started paying out less over the last five years and so a lot of uh a lot of independent media brands have se uh, seen actually a drop in their revenue from advertising from adsense okay yeah that yeah. That makes sense. It's just going to different places. Yes. Uh, more of the business to business advertising revenue is still available to, to get to, but the, the more independent just set up like a AdSense or maybe some other third party advertising account that's been paying out a lot less over the last five years. So, uh, that business model is starting to look more and more like it's dying. So. Okay. Well, this has been very interesting, Jason, and I'm so glad it's a great testament to, I mean, honestly, um, entrepreneurship is such a 
everybody they're just saying fail forward and um it applies to life too especially in your case you just kept on going and uh, it's a testament to what can happen when you do that so um i love that that you were able to share that for anybody that's like feeling down or like they've reached the hardest point in their life it's just not true um you can basically make it part of your past and, and not let it ruin any more of your present than it already has. And just keep trying new things. And one of them is going, going to work. Would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, as hard as it is sometimes to do, you, you kind of sometimes have to just kind of pick yourself up and keep pushing forward because, uh, it's kind of like the little meme that keeps sharing over the internet about the person, uh, uh the diamonds underneath the the uh dirt and there's two different people with pickaxes uh you're you're gonna run into that period where maybe you took the long route to get into the diamond and it feels like maybe you're never going to actually get to the other side but if you don't keep pushing forward and learning and growing along the way, you're never going to know what you could potentially achieve, so. Well, and you're definitely not gonna get there. <laughs> like that's the- Yeah, that's also very true. Yeah, you, that's the 100% guarantee you're not gonna get there is if you stop. Yes, uh, it sounds cliche, but yes, never give up. Uh, you may, it may be your fifth business before you finally see the results you wanted, but, if you give up, you're never going to get there. So it's true. Okay, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. This was really valuable insider knowledge, and um, I appreciate you you sharing it with us. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Felicia. All right, thank you, and you guys join us uh, next time on the next episode of Sales Is Not a Dirty Word. All right.